Thank you. Thank you. I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 12 through 30 this morning. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. You know, we have a lot of phrases that are kind of bandied about. Some people call them Christianese. And, um, you know, one of the reasons they become common is because there's, there's a glimmer of truth in them. There's something for us to learn in them. Uh, so sometimes we have to look at it and discard it, but sometimes it should cause us to be uh, provoked inside. We should be pondering this sort of thing. And one of those phrases is, Christ is life. What does that mean? Uh, now, I'm, I'm going to tell you right up front that if your theology is based on you and what you're going to get out of Christianity, it's going to mean something totally different than what Paul meant when he wrote it. But that's what we're going to take a look at today. What does Christ is life mean? So last week we read in Paul's letter to the Philippians that they, they, they were the first church that he planted in Macedonia. Uh, Philippi was an influential 
was a strategic city, uh, not the biggest city in Macedonia. They had a lot in common with Washington, D.C., actually. But the church that started there was small, and it was facing significant challenges. And we're just beginning to understand how significant those challenges were. So our sermon title today is No Fear. And we'll get a little deeper into that. No, no, although this church was small, we're just beginning to get the idea that they are incredibly strong. They're instrumental in Paul's ministry throughout Macedonia, actually became the foundation for evangelizing all of Greece. So this week, we're going to just hear how vital the support of the Philippian church has been to Paul, what it means to him. And this is going to roll out in three proclamations that Paul makes in this passage. The first one is he's going to give a report, and that's in verses 12 through 18. And the second proclamation will be a resolve that he makes because of the report in verses 19 through 26. And then we're going to hear a request that Paul will make of the Philippian church in verses 27 through 30. So while we're reading the entire letter, you got to keep in mind as we go through this, the context of what's happening. Paul is in prison. He's awaiting execution. It's not that it might come. It's that it is going to come. He knows it's coming, and he's facing the prospect of going home to be with his father in heaven. You can hear some of that inner conflict in him in in this passage, a little bit of it. So let's take a look at this report, starting in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers. Now, Paul's been using popular cultural transitions uh, in the beginning of his letter. He's doing it again here. Uh, This is something that would just kind of show up in first century correspondence. It would be the reason he's writing the letter. He's gone through his greeting. He's gone through the the first uh, who's writing the letter, who's receiving the letter. And now he wants them to know. And when we get to chapter 2, we're going to see that the Philippians apparently had concerns about Paul's imprisonment. They heard he was in prison. Uh, They've heard some rumors that he might be sick. He's not doing well. Maybe they've even heard that he's awaiting execution. So Paul is writing to assure them. Now, the question is, what is he trying to assure them of? Listen to this, second half of verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, Paul puts on display his personal priorities. This is what's important in his life. Yes, he's in prison. Yes, he is about to die, probably horribly, painfully. But it's all worth it because the gospel is going forward. The gospel is being proclaimed. People are being saved. Paul's testimony is spreading throughout Macedonia, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. The guys that that guard the emperor, they have heard the gospel and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So what the imperial guard knows about Paul is not what he's done Not what he's guilty of, but why he's there. He's been telling the guard, the reason I'm in prison is for the sake of Jesus Christ. They haven't heard anything like that before. They've heard people declare their own innocence. They don't belong there. 
Paul actually asked to go there. He's standing before Felix and Agrippa, and he says, I want to talk to Caesar. And don't for a moment think that he wanted to go talk to Caesar so that he could plead his case. Because as he's standing before Felix and Agrippa, what does he do? He shares the gospel with them. Paul's going to Rome to share the gospel with Caesar, knowing, knowing that if he has the opportunity to share the gospel with Caesar, Caesar's going to put him in prison because Caesar didn't want anybody worshiping anybody but him. So the imperial guard is watching this. It's an amazing moment. And Paul says it's all for Christ. People are talking. Paul's gotten the attention of all the people around him. People know that his suffering is for Jesus Christ. People were seeing something marvelous. People are seeing something memorable. Uh, people are watching a man who has this powerfully compelling message, the same message that we have, and he's walking it out right in front of their eyes. There's conviction, there's faith, there's trustworthiness, steadfastness coming from Paul, and it's changing people around him. Paul's saying, look, there's a lot more than what you see here. There's a lot more than what's in this realm. There's something beyond it. There's something transcendent, eternal, supernatural, and it's so glorious that it's willing to die for it. I'm willing to die for it. You know, we don't talk much about transcendence, do we? Oh, that's just a big word. We don't talk about something beyond all this. We get preoccupied with our situations, with the political climate, with the cultural climate, with the climate. And we allow those things to consume us. There's nothing beyond it. We got to take care of this problem. We got to take care of that problem. We got to do this. We got to do that over there. And we never talk about eternity. Yet you and I, if we are believers in Christ, if we have confessed our sin and repented, we have a grasp on eternity. There's something so far beyond anything we have here that it's unimaginable. And all God has asked us to do is talk about it. Literally, Paul's saying, stop, stop talking about all that other stuff. Let's talk about what's really important. Let's talk about people's souls. And this message is changing the people around Paul. And it's inspiring other people to be just as bold. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The believers around Paul can see what's happening to those who preach the gospel. They see the results of sharing the gospel. Paul's in prison. Some of his buddies are there too. He's going to die. Yet his message is so moving that they no longer have any fear of earthly repercussions. It doesn't bother them. And they're preaching boldly. Well, most of them. <laughs> Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Ooh, those bad guys. Somebody needs to do something about them. Let's get the doctrine police out and take care of them. Yeah, some folks are prideful. Some folks are greedy. Some see Paul's fame and imprisonment, see it as an opportunity to grab their own fame without the imprisonment. 
But others, others are doing it for goodwill, good intentions. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. These people, their motivations are pure, they're good. They do it out of love. This is the agape love that we talked about, love that originates on behalf of the lover with no regard for the value or worth of the beloved. The godly love, we heard about that in 1 John. And what this means is that there are people with right motivations. They do it out of love for Paul. They do it out of love for the gospel. They love for those that they preach to, love for God. While others, in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. <clears throat> Doctrine police, we need them. Yeah, those guys do it to promote themselves. They do it for their own, their own motivations, not necessarily for the sake of the gospel. Seem to be motivated by showing up Paul and, instead of preaching about the kingdom of God. And you know what? We, we can spend a lot of time discussing these guys and criticizing them, all these different groups and their motivations. And, but that, that, that would miss Paul's point because that's not what he's after here. He's not trying to rally the troops against these, these questionable teachers. He makes it clear in the next verse. He's at verse 18a, the first half. What then? Okay, so what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about these guys that have bad motivations? What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Did you hear that? Paul said, oh, yeah, they got bad intentions. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're questionable what they're doing. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, they're getting money. But they're preaching the gospel. And his report is the gospel is being preached. And notice through all this, Paul doesn't say anything about his personal welfare. He doesn't tell him whether he's sick or whether he's well. He doesn't complain about his suffering, doesn't complain about his incarceration. He doesn't try to rally support. All he does is tell them that God is using everything in his personal situation, the good and the bad, for God's purposes, for God's kingdom, for God's glory. Paul said, yeah, I'm in prison. Yeah, some of us, some of you are suffering. Yeah, some folks are preaching for the wrong reasons. Yeah, there, there's hardship. But listen, God's using it all, my suffering, your suffering, the sketchy teachers, all of it for the sake of the gospel, for his glory. So let's have a party. Let's rejoice. Paul's first proclamation is a report that though there are a lot of hardships, he rejoices. And that leads to his second proclamation. And this one is a resolve. What, what happens inside Paul because of all this? Verse 18b, yes, I will rejoice. He said, yeah, you heard me. I'm rejoicing over all this. He's emphatic. It's all a matter of rejoicing. And here's why, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul rejoices. Paul rejoices because he believes that God will use his situation and the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Spirit. Well, let me explain what he's saying here. 
He is saying, the Spirit will use your prayers to bring me through my ordeal and for my ultimate deliverance. And we're going to be careful with this. Does this mean that Paul expects to be rescued from his circumstances? Does it mean that the Philippians have to pray right or Paul's not going to get out of his jam? Do do they have to have enough faith? Is the spirit helpless if the Philippians don't pray? Is Paul depending on their prayers to get him out of jail? No, that's not what's happening here. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Look at this, whether by life or by death. Paul's trying to tell them that the spirit they pray to is the same spirit in him and the encouragement and the support that they are offering him is used by God to help him through his suffering regardless of what the consequences are. Paul's not so much interested in getting out of his situation as much as he is in honoring God in and through his situation. He's not concerned with saving his own life as he is in living out a life that pleases and honors God for the sake of the gospel. And this is, this is when Paul writes his familiar phrase. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We could spend months on this. Right here. The greatest theologian in human history, maybe the second greatest theologian in human history, But this is Paul. This is Paul the Apostle. He lays it all out in crystal clear language. Notice Paul doesn't say, I live for Christ. He does. He said that in other places. But he chooses his words very carefully here. He doesn't just live for Christ. He says, living is Christ. His life on earth is about Christ, not himself. He's not in it for what he can get out of it. He, Christ is the center of his universe. Listen carefully. If you take away nothing from what I'm sharing with you today, it's something I've been learning for the last several years. I am not the center of the universe. That was, that was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah. And you know how I feel that. Yeah, I've, I've shared with you before. Why would you even be here if it wasn't for me? (laughs) When I die, you're all going to go away, right? No. Well, no. No, because I'm not the center of the universe. And that's what Paul's trying to say. It's not about you. It's about Christ. When you get a, a grip on the fact that it's not about you, everything becomes about you and what God has done for you. When you sacrifice that, when you give it up, that I'm not the center of the universe. It doesn't have to go the way I think it should go. I don't have to be disappointed in the outcome because there's somebody smarter and wiser than me that has arranged this outcome. When we surrender all of that and surrender to the will of God and the things that he's called us to do, we become free. We don't have to worry about these things. Christ becomes our life. 
Paul lives to serve Christ, not to satisfy himself. And he vows to do that until he dies. It's a valid vow because he's facing it. But look at this. Paul's not afraid of death. He believes everything he's been teaching. He is assured of his salvation. He's assured of transcendence. He knows that the true deliverance, that the true healing, the perfect healing, the ultimate fulfillment of all God's promises to him and to all of his children lies in his death. That's kind of macabre, isn't it? I mean, it almost sounds cultish, doesn't it? But listen to this. What Paul's trying to say is, for a Christian, death isn't final. It's not the end, not for a believer. It's the next step. It's graduation day. It's a time when we all throw our hats up in the air and we've surrendered so much to Jesus Christ, standing in his glory, we don't even care where they land, amen? It's time to have a party because we are there. We are home. We are with Christ, seated in the heavenlies forevermore. It's graduation day. Paul looks forward to that day that he's going to stand in glory. He's eager for it. He wants it. But meanwhile, his welfare is in God's hands. He's not trying to take control of the situation. And he has, in the middle of that, he has a, oh, well, let me think about this for a moment. <laughs> let me think about what I just said and how it applies to this situation with Philippians. He said, number two, verse 22 If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, right? Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. He says, if I say, it means I continue to produce more good works for the kingdom. Let me think about this. What should I do? Verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. I'm not sure which one I want more. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. He says, I would certainly rather be with Christ than in this situation. He looked around his cell, particularly where I am now. That's where I really want to be, to be there with him. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Look what Paul just did. He says, enough of these selfish thoughts. It's not about me. It'll be better for those around me that I stay here. I should be thinking about them as being more significant than myself. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He says, I'm going to stay here for the sake of those around me, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of living in Christ for the sake of making him my life. It's not my own desires. That's not what I want. I'm going to do this so that in verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. Jesus, because of my coming to you again. He says, I'll do this so that those I teach, those that are listening can glory in Christ so that I can continue to lead them, to disciple them, 
Show him the everlasting way. And maybe, just maybe, God will allow me to see them again. And Paul doesn't know if that's going to happen. He hasn't lost hope. But he's also realistic. He may never see them again. So he leaves them with his heart's desire for them. Paul's resolve, that second proclamation, is keep on teaching, to keep on discipling until he's with the Lord. Carry on the work that he's been assigned. But he has a few things that he wants those who follow him to do as well as a result of his commitment to them. And that leads us to the third proclamation, the request that Paul had. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, he wants them to remember what holds them together, what brings their unity, what their calling is, and how that, that unity and that calling should govern every moment of their lives, and that they should walk in light of the gospel. Uh, that, that's the message that they've been given to proclaim to the world. This is what we were talking about in these ministries, these outreach ministries. We have a message, brothers and sisters, and we are called to proclaim it to the world and called to proclaim it in any and every fashion that we can. And it's a message of salvation. It's a message of transcendence. It's a message of eternity. Paul says, let this be on your minds all the time. He wants them to maintain their testimony, whether he comes to visit or not. Their testimony isn't dependent on Paul's presence. It's dependent on Christ's presence. He wants to hear of their incredible unity as they work together to become vessels of mercy and grace. And furthermore, he wants them to be, verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. <laughs> Those bad guys. Stick with me for a second. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is just huge. Paul says, don't be frightened. Don't be intimidated by those who oppose you. Stay true to your calling regardless of what happens. I mean, every week somebody comes up and they say, the church is in trouble. Look what's happening over here. Look what's happening over there. The church is in trouble. The church is not in trouble. If you've read the book, you know we're there at the end. Amen? <laughs> okay? So we don't have to worry about those that oppose us. We don't have to make an issue about those that we see as evil and rejecting God. Who's going to take care of them, us or God? So we're to be faithful to the calling that we've been given and not consumed, consumed with conspiracy theories. Oh, do you know what they're doing? We've got to do something about this. Yes, we do. We need to share the gospel. The scriptures tell us to expect this stuff. Isaiah says, don't call conspiracy theories all those things that they call conspiracy theories. Why? Because they're distracting. They consume us. They consume resources that we should be spending otherwise. And Paul's speaking from his own experience here. 
He's been opposed by the Roman authorities. He's been threatened and beaten by the Jews. He's been persecuted by other Christians. And he never once failed to turn it all back to a gospel opportunity. He never stopped talking about his resurrected Christ. The amazing thing is, Paul's not just talking about ungodly people here. He's not just saying, don't be afraid of anyone who rejects the gospel. He's saying, don't fear anyone who would lead you away from doing what you've been called to do. Don't be afraid of them and don't let them instill you with fear. They'll throw you off course. Always keep before you the charge you've been given. This is really important for us. It's really important for us here today because we are in a divisive culture. Everybody's drawing lines and taking sides and encouraging us to do the same thing. Oh, you've got to be over here. You can't be over there. Those people are wrong. We're right. And it just goes on and on and on. And every day there's something else for us to be divided over. There's only one thing to be divided over. Amen? Jesus Christ and salvation in him alone. Paul tells them why they shouldn't have any fear. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you, plural, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is not an encouraging contemporary message. This is not the, the uh, seeker-oriented church meeting everybody's desires. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is Paul saying this is how it works. Verse 30, we should be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul said, I'm still in the middle of the fight. I'm suffering the consequences of standing up for Jesus Christ. I'm suffering the consequences of standing up for you. I'm suffering the consequences of making Christ my life. And ultimately, they will send me home. And what we see here is our beliefs, our hardships, our suffering, are things that God has given us. Things that God has allowed in our lives for his sake, for his glory. Paul says, exactly what's happening to me. I'm going through it right now. And I have chosen to rejoice in it because it allows me to show my trust and my faith in an all-powerful, all-sovereign God. I put them on display. Paul's request is that the Philippians continue to grow in their faith and embrace the idea that God is in control of every aspect of their lives. Not just when things are going well, but even when things seem to be going off the rails. That's not a great contemporary message either. We don't like someone else being in control of our lives. Let's admit it. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But I, I, will, I will promise you, 
I, I, I will guarantee you that the more you ponder that idea that God influences every aspect of your life, the more you plug that into your scriptures and read them with that filter, the more comfortable you're going to be. But I've got to be honest with you. When I think I'm in control of my life, things never go the way I think they should. I don't make the decisions that are as godly as they should be. When I allow the spirit and the word to govern what I'm doing, then I end up with peace. It might not be the most comfortable situation, but there's peace. And that's just, that's just a peak. That's just a shadow of what we're going to experience when we stand in his presence forever. All-consuming peace. All-consuming joy. Spirit's just saying, when you're obedient, when you do what I told you to do, when you trust me more than you trust yourself, here's a little glimpse into heaven. Because your heart's at rest. And you know the outcome is in God's hands and not yours. That's what Paul's trying to encourage the Philippians to do. So we've, we've seen these, these three proclamations. We saw the report. For Paul, the important thing is to know the word of God. It's going forth in power. He's not concerned so much with the motivations of those preaching the gospel. There's a lesson in itself. As he is with the truth being portrayed. And even though some of Paul's own people coming out of the church seem to have turned on him. And we know if we read 2 Timothy, that's going to get worse. Even though he's suffering, even though he's going to die, Paul rejoices that the gospel is going forward in power. And people are being saved. Paul knows that it's not about him, but it's about God. It's about God's kingdom. When he allows that to be his guiding principle, he can maintain his joy. He can have his peace. He's no longer dependent upon his circumstances. But now he rests in God's presence and God's plan in his life. Paul can feel the joy of the Lord, even in his suffering and his pain. There's a gift right there. If only we could learn that lesson, that we can feel the presence and joy of the Lord even in the middle of our trials. How might our lives change? We saw Paul's resolve. He's not going to give up hope. He's not going to stop hoping. He's going to continue working for the kingdom. He's going to continue to work for the sake of others, to set aside his own desires and to live in and for Christ, always hoping for the best, even while suffering through the worst. And then there's Paul's request. The Philippians lived in a highly political, influential town. They were small in number. They were looked down upon. Paul asked them to remember their calling, regardless of what the situation is. Remember, what's really important is not the issues of the day. They had issues back in that day. Things like tooth decay. What are they going to do about tooth decay? It's killing all our people. They had their issues. They had their special interest groups. This is nothing new. Don't worry about those who oppose you. Don't worry about your comfort or your rights. What you need to worry about is the gospel. The gospel, the message of church has been given. For Paul, who's facing execution every day over that very thing in his life, none of it matters if he abandons his calling. 
It allows those around him to distract him from proclaiming his message. Paul says, watch me. Here's how you do this. You want to know what it means that when I say Christ is life, this is what it looks like. And, and this is not Paul being arrogant. This is Paul saying, this is what I saw Christ do. He made it about those around him. He wasn't, he wasn't concerned with his own comfort. He wasn't concerned with his own desires. Matter of fact, he had a moment in the garden when he said, Father, is there some other way? What he was concerned about was the message that he had. The message that was fulfilled not just when he was crucified, but when he came out of that tomb. And that made it all worthwhile. But Paul's not saying be like me. He's saying be like Christ. Christ is life. Our life comes in Christ. Not in what we do. Not in the people around us. But in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you've given us your son to be our lives. And that as we follow his example, Father, as we do the things that he did, as we imitate him as Paul imitated him, Father, that we can find the peace and the joy that will get us through the hard times, will get us through our trials, that it will ultimately deliver us into your presence where we will have perfect healing, perfect righteousness, a perfect cleansing, perfect holiness, for all eternity. We pray this in our name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Next week we'll be in chapter 2 of Philippians. Thank you. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.